Well, first of all, I just want to thank you all for being here. Um, uh, so eight of us have just come back from a civil rights pilgrimage to Alabama, and um, what I'm discovering is is that I'm still on that pilgrimage. <laughs> Um, it was an incredibly rich, um, challenging, um, deep experience, and I'm still sort of living with it in many ways that I can't put words to. Um, but uh, me and then Malia, we're going to just share just some pieces of this experience, and probably we'll come back to share more. Um, but I wanted to give you some background because I don't know if all of you know, um, for the last four years or so, I've been a part of a group called Racial Social Justice as Dharma Practice. And this group meet, has been meeting once a month. Um, and it's an inter-Sangha group. There are people in the group from different Sanghas within the Bay Area and also the East Coast. And um, the last two years, myself and Hoka Chris Fortin from uh, Dharma Heart Zen have been co-leading this group. And so during this time, we've done a lot of reading and studying and deep reflection together as a group. Um, but suddenly myself and the Dharma brother, Bob Andrews, who was also in this group, we sort of came to this together that, you know... Um, We've been reading, we see movies, we listen to the news, we hear the social media, but we want to go. We want to go to the places where the roots of, you know, the history of slavery, the civil rights movement, reconstruction, um, the mass incarceration, all of the different faces of racism um, have lived in a very intense way and in a way that I don't, has not been part of my life experience. So um, back in, I guess it was November, we started envisioning this, and we had kind of a vision, and we kind of put it out there, and it was kind of interesting, because within a month, you know, eight people came forth and said, I'm in. But saying there that they were in was before we even kind of created anything yet. <laughs> I mean, we kind of knew where we wanted to go, but that was about it. Um, so that really struck me that, that I think all of us on some level felt this kind of call. <laughs> we need to go. Um, and so Bob and I spent many, many hours. I mean, it's a nitty-gritty thing to plan a trip like this. I mean, all the details are important, where we're going to stay and where we're going and how we're getting there. And so anyway... Um, you know, the journey began in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, which is considered perhaps the, the, the beginning of the civil rights movement, the direct action civil rights movement. Uh, we continued to travel to Selma, uh, where, of course, um, there were three attempts made to cross the Pettus Bridge and walk the Freedom Trail to Montgomery. And then we ended up in Montgomery um, for three nights, where we spent a day at the Legacy Museum, which I'll tell you about, in the Peace and Justice Memorial. All of this bringing us to what I would like to say is the carnal ground of the massive suffering initiated by the implications of the transatlantic slave trade. So Bob Andrews, Chris and Bruce Fortin, Judith Regeer, John Katona, Malia McCarthy, Amanda Kimball from SBMG, Barbara Briscoe from SIM, and myself. This is the group, and we're all white people. So on September 5th, eight of us became a Sangha. We met up in Birmingham. Now, you know, this is a pilgrimage. We called it a pilgrimage. And it wasn't just a journey. It was and continues to be a pilgrimage. And there are many ways we can be on pilgrimage. But for us, pilgrimage meant a journey to a sacred place, a seeking of a deeper connection 
to a larger truth guiding our lives through a visceral encounter with what I'm going to call the tremendum. (laughs) And this word tremendum has become really important to me to kind of capture um, what we entered into and um, what we're still living and hopefully you will too will be invited into this tremendum. And the dictionary defines tremendum as a profound mystery, both awesome and terrifying. And I add to that, great forces are clashing in the midst of acts of God beyond comprehension. Something remarkable by its magnitude is happening. I felt like, and I think we did enter this tremendum of what was happening in this very short period of time, really, starting in 1954 when the Brown versus Board of Education was passed by the Supreme Court declaring that segregated schools are inherently unequal, starting there and going up to 1965. So everything that we were in this time capsule during those 10, 11 years during this pilgrimage And Judith Regeer says, place becomes the teacher. The place where the traumatic happened, where hate manifests, allowing for the teaching to be viscerally experienced. We lived with this question, what are the truths that will be revealed if we go to the places in the South where the roots of the civil rights movement began? where the courage of black people whose ancestors were enslaved changed the world, where these denied truths can be witnessed. To enter the tremendum really means that our minds can't fathom this, that something of great magnitude is happening. So what our minds can't fathom calls for our hearts to break open. And this is what began to happen And we knew we were a Sangha because we cannot do this alone. So every morning we sat Zazen, set our intentions. Every evening we sat Zazen and reflected upon the day. And that time of meditation, I think, made all the difference in terms of our ability to stay open. I mean, that was the challenge, to to not close down to what we were learning about and experiencing. And I just have to confess, um, you know, this basically has been a confrontation of hatred, violence, unrelenting cruelty, and white backlash. And since I've come back, I really have to say I have felt undone. I've sat um, quietly every day, just because I couldn't do anything else, just letting the memories flash through me. Sometimes I've just started to cry uncontrollably, Um, especially if I feel I'm close to someone physically, I'm able to cry. I don't know. There's no words. I can't really say what the tears are about yet. Um, I've had this koan with me these last couple of weeks, And the koan says, after the summer rain, the path disappears. I feel like my path has disappeared. So taking refuge helps. And feeling the movement of falling down on the earth, staying in my feet. But I have to say, yes, we've confronted hatred and violence and cruelty but we also received love. We were amazingly blessed to have five different African-American guides spending time with us in all of these places. And these were people who participated in many of the marches who were children when they walked across the the Edward Pettus Bridge. Um, You know, they experienced bombings and violence And they all spent time talking to us. Um, You know, our our guide in Selma 
she was, by the age of 14, she had been um, jailed 11 times. Uh, but we, they spent time sharing with us, but the way they were with us had the, made all the difference in the world. You know, they, they, there was a kind of kindness that just came from their bodies, um, almost, you know, like a warmth and um, care for how we were. The first person that we met with in Birmingham, uh, Reverend Wilder, who is sort of like the, the guardian of the historic Bethel Baptist Church, which I'll tell you more about, um, you know, he, he even talked about how he was adjusting himself so that we would feel comfortable being with him. Because if we didn't feel comfortable or respected or safe, we couldn't hear the stories on a bodily level. We would have shut down. And so he understood that. And so we felt this kind of um, kindness and care, but also passion, because he's the one that's still trying to make this church a World Cultural Heritage Center. And I'll tell you more about it, but just a passion to tell the story, to keep the truth alive. Um, So, facing hate with love. That seems to be, you know, what made this really a deep pilgrimage for for me, anyway. Um, so, um, another sort of dimension of this uh, um, practice uh, as a sangha and having these guides guide us with such love we began to appreciate more of what it means to bear witness. And I don't know how many of you have thought about witnessing before. I mean, Ellie Weissel, you know, who's written so much about the Holocaust, he says, when you listen to a witness, you become a witness. He says, I tell the world what happened, and then the listeners become witnesses to what happened. So, and this is how the truth is passed. You know, if you become a witness to the stories, it lives in your body. You don't forget. And then you pass it on to the next person. So um, I'm inviting, (laughs) I feel like we became witnesses during this trip and that the witnessing made a difference. And now you're witnesses. All of us together are witnessing. So um, one way of talking about it, bearing witness takes place in places where deep human trauma occurred and where healing is endlessly needed. Bearing witness contributes to this healing. To bear witness is to have a strong glimpse into the truth that the life of the other is actually our own life itself that we are indeed one body. I mean, this is our practice. To live from a place of witness asks us to rest in our faith, to commune with the source, to take homage in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, to bear witness uh, means that you bring your wholeheartedness to something It means that you are fully present because you're letting yourself become aware of everything that's arising. You're not telling yourself, oh, I should be, I should feel good right now, or I should love this person. You're noticing everything, the rage, the sadness, the hate. But as you're noticing that, you're also then free to be present to, you know, the other person or what's, or the events that are happening. So I just invite all of us, as we're sharing tonight, to, in a sense, do that practice as as I'm sharing and Malia's sharing. Just notice what's arising. Be gentle with yourselves. um, Because now we're in this tremendum together. So I just want to um, 
just give you a few glimpses of our actual journey. Um, and uh, just to kind of bring you along and also to be able to share because the sharing actually brings relief. I feel better after I can talk about it. And um, so, as I said, we started in Birmingham. And um, in 1954 was the Board of Education, the Brown versus Board of Education uh, decision. But, of course, most southern states and cities and counties did not want to actually implement this change, did not want to integrate the schools. So this became the issue. And by 1956, this um, Bethel Baptist Church, the pastor was um, Fred Shuttlesworth, and he's the one that began the direct action movement in the civil rights movement. But this was the first of three bombings of this church. And this first bombing was of the pastor's home. So Fred Shuttlesworth and his wife and his two children were in this home, and his home was bombed. Birmingham actually used to be called Bombingham because there were so many bombings there. But the house shattered. I mean, it was a big explosion. People rushed forth, and all of a sudden... Fred, his wife, and his children walked out of the house completely unharmed. Um, And this became a man of faith, right? This is a church. People, he became emboldened. He felt this was an act of God, that God had saved his family in support of the civil rights movement. So he became more emboldened to begin to Um, have sit-ins and marches and boycotts. And um, overall, the church was bombed three times and never was anyone harmed. So again, that's partly what, why they want this to be a world culture, world, I forgot the term, heritage, Heritage, world heritage center, um, because you know, there's some belief this tremendum was here. You know, some mysterious force was at work. Uh, and there are more stories like this. Um, but I have to say, just being in Birmingham and um, listening to the stories and seeing both this church and the 16th Avenue Church, um, what was most difficult to face was the incredible backlash. I mean, just incredible. Um, Fred Shuttlesworth decided that he would um, admit his daughter to a white school, and um, his wife and he and, and drove the daughter to school. He got out of the car, and there was a huge mob of white men who beat him up. He, could, he couldn't admit his daughter to the school. Um, In 1963, five days after the first black children entered white schools, this is when the four KKK members bombed the 16th Avenue Church. So you have the the attempt to integrate the schools, you know, the positive force, and then the backlash. Um, But here's where I want to tell you again, You know, this bombing of the church and the killing of these four girls is this horrible, tragic, um, devastating event. I mean, it was a huge bomb. But what happened was the minister of the church, you know, everybody's in chaos. You know, nobody understands what happened. Everybody's enraged. He gets up on the steps of the church and starts to preach and read from the Bible the scriptural passage of that day, which happened to be, love includes forgiveness. And what happened was, it calmed everybody down. So there was no more violence. So here again, it's like hate, you know, is met with love. And and this is coming from the black community. I mean, the degree of courage that grew out of their faith is just remarkable. Um, 
So many more stories in Birmingham, but we we um, had a, like a van, and we had Jake, who was one of our other wonderful guides, who was also driving us in the van, taking us from from Mont- uh, Birmingham to Selma to Montgomery. And Jake also was nine years old during the Freedom March. Uh, so he could tell us all of his stories while he was driving us in this van. And so we went to Selma to meet Joanne Bland, who is this incredible person who I've already told you about, who as a child had already been in jail you know, 11 times till by the time she was 14, and she's this tough woman. She would She would drive us around and she would say, oh, there's the church that during the first attempt to cross the bridge and the, the state troopers were coming towards us, we all ran to this church for safety and the troopers came into the church and started beating us up. She said, there's the church. And then we would go past a restaurant and she would say, and that's the restaurant where as a child I had to stand and look in the window because no black people were allowed to eat there. Uh, so all of this is just so real. Um, but, but, and she was kind of a tough, maybe Malia will tell you more about her. She was, she was kind of a tough, tough. She, you know, had a strong personality. She was very opinionated. She would kind of order us around. But, uh, but, you know, the first moment I met her, I walked up to her and I just felt this warmth emanating from her body. And so when we, we said goodbye and we were now going down to the next uh, thing, I went up to her and I said, Joanne, I just need to tell you, you just emanate love. And she came over, she gave me this big hug, and she said, that's what it's all about, love. Um, And she was this tough woman. There was a monument that had been set up in Selma after, you know, the, the Freedom March, and it was, I don't know, iron or whatever, and picture of Martin Luther King, and at the top of the metal marker, it said, I had a dream. Now, she said, no. Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. And she fought for over a year to make them take that marker down and redo it. Because she said, I want the children to see that marker and read, I have a dream. I mean, just incredible, that commitment, you know, to... Um, you know, bring the next generation up. Uh, so that was Joanne. And Jake, our driver, well, I mean, I don't know how many of you know, there were three attempts to cross the, the POTUS Bridge. And the POTUS Bridge, by the way, is named after a Ku Klux Klan member and still hasn't been changed. Um, but the first attempt is called Bloody Sunday. The troopers wouldn't let them cross. The second attempt was Martin Luther King and Medgar Evers and Abernathy. That's right, I'm looking at my husband. Uh, (laughs) So the second attempt to cross the bridge, the troopers were still there, and so the three uh, ministers just bowed down and prayed. There was no violence. And then finally, Johnson brought in the National Guard to protect them so that they could actually, over five days, walk all the way from Selma to Montgomery. And they got to Montgomery, and there were 25,000 people gathered there to celebrate um, this Freedom March. And then shortly after that, the, the Civil Rights Act and the Voter Registration Act were became the law. Um, so... How am I doing? I didn't even notice what time I started. So, uh, but anyway, I'm. I want to tell you a little bit about Montgomery, uh, with um, because going to well, let's see, how many of you maybe know of Brian Stevenson? He wrote the book um, um, Just Mercy. Uh, He's very well known as a lawyer for representing uh, black, especially black people who are on death row, who have been falsely uh, um, accused and 
determined to be guilty, and um, he's taken cases to the Supreme Court to change the laws in regards to children who've committed crimes so that it's no longer legal to give them life sentences or death death row sentences anymore. Um, you know, he's really this incredible person because he also founded the Legacy Museum and the Peace and Justice Memorial, which we visited in Montgomery. And... Um, It's just really hard to describe what it's like to go to this museum. Um, it's basically, it's it, you have to be there for the whole day to see everything. Um, it starts with the slaves, the people who were enslaved coming in 1619, going through slavery, going through Reconstruction, going through civil rights, going through uh, the lynchings, going through massive incarceration, and wanting you to see, to witness, to actually let your body know what happened and what uh, white people did to black people. But this museum is so set up so that every sense you have is activated. There's artwork. There's three different theater productions. Um, there's music. There's sculptures. Um, it's like you're you're being engaged in every way that you turn. You know, they they have these booths, and in the booths, for example, is a virtual, real person. For example, a man who is incarcerated, and you're sitting there, and there are the jail bars. And he comes in and starts to talk to you, looking you in the eye, telling you his story. And he says, thank you for listening. And then you can go to another booth, and there's a woman who's a slave, and she's singing a spiritual, calling to God, saying, I wish I'd never been born. So you're being asked to see the humanity in the other people, but in this way that this, this, it's felt like this museum was a gift of love because of the way that all of this was set up to, to be able to be, just be there and see and feel. And um, even the docents, like it's this huge museum and, you know, there's a lot of security, and there's only one bathroom. And I needed to go to the bathroom, finally. <laughs> and uh, I go to the docent, and I ask her, where's the bathroom? And I just expected her to say, oh, well, go around here and over there, and there it is. But she actually walked me all the way to the bathroom. And it just felt like this kindness, because she knew this was so hard to actually be at that museum and see all of these horrible things that had happened. Um, so it's, it's as if the love was there, the kindness was there, so we could witness, so we could be fully present and take it in. And then finally, the Peace and Justice Memorial is basically outdoors, and there are 4,000 iron monuments hanging from the ceiling in rows with the names of 4,000 people who had been lynched. Their names, the date, where, and again, it's like overwhelming. And yet there's this pool of water underneath it all with you can hear the waterfall dripping and you're just invited to sit there in the water to receive the, this truth. It's just basically witnessing the truth. Um, so I just, I feel so grateful <laughs> to have been able to go there and to have this experience. And I just want to end with uh, something Brian Stevenson wrote, because this maybe 
says more too about what happens, what kind of connection happens when you go on a pilgrimage to a sacred place to witness, you know, the horror, the hatred, the tragedy. He says, we are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and have been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. He says, I desperately wanted mercy for Jimmy Dill, a prisoner on death row, and would have done anything to create justice for him. But I couldn't pretend that his struggle was disconnected from my own. The ways in which I've been hurt and have hurt others are different from the way Jimmy Dill suffered and caused suffering, but our shared brokenness connected us. There is a strength, a power even, in understanding brokenness, because embracing our brokenness creates a need and desire for mercy, and perhaps a corresponding need to show mercy. When you experience mercy, you learn things that are hard to learn otherwise. You see things you cannot otherwise see. You hear things you cannot otherwise hear. You begin to recognize the humanity that resides in each of us. Thank you for listening. So, can you hear me? Um, So, I'm Malia McCarthy, and during the pandemic, there was a group, uh, I think it was called White Supremacy in the Dharma, or anti, I seem to, the title maybe changed a bit. Yes, that I was in and several other people here. Um, And we did a lot of readings and reflection And I found it to be um, very, very powerful. Um, Dorley mentioned the word undone as, you know, her experience of the trip to to Alabama. And that was, it's funny because that's the word that came up for me in that class was I felt undone. Um, I just felt unraveled. Um, And and then the word that came up for me after the Alabama trip was raw. I just feel very raw um, after what we went through. Um, And so I didn't know what to expect from the Alabama trip. I didn't really have any expectations. So um, just kind of moving into the unknown. But But we sort of, we very much did it as a group. Um... And I'll share with you this dream that I had the night before, <clears throat> and I, I shared with this somebody uh, with this dream with folks on the trip. So the night before we left, I dreamt that I was I was a kid and I was in the bathroom at my house where where I grew up, and there was a window, <clears throat> and there was like a cup a twelve year old boy banging on the window, white kid, and then there was another one, and then another one, and these these boys kept coming and at first and at first I was scared I thought they were threatening and then it started raining and then I thought no they're banging because they need help um and I, but I wasn't sure did they need help or were they somebody that was threatening um and then there, a police officer came by a, a white man and he like shut you know took them off I don't know took them away and I wasn't sure like is is he taking them somewhere to protect them? Is he protecting me? Is anybody being protected? You know, and were they going to come back into the house? So 
to me, the dream was kind of like about how confusing it is. Who's the good guys? Who's the bad guys? Who's needs to be protected? Who's the antagonist? Um, and it was all very confused. Um, and so, you know, so we went on the trip and, and I would talk to my husband while I was there and he would say, because my mother is, is Japanese and he'd say to me, don't tell anyone you're mixed race. They don't, they don't like that down there. And I was like, I almost thought he was joking, but he wasn't joking. And it kind of put me on edge a little bit. I mean, it, it was that aside, it's a frightening, it was a bit frightening being there. Um, so I, I knew the history, you know, I mean, I've taken American history and, um, but it was going on the trip. It was like a different way of knowing, like you knew it. Um, it just in, in a very different way. Um, we talked about Joanne Bland and, um, you know, she was, she was locked up. What was it? 11 times before she was 14 or something like that. She, um, her mother, she, so she was the third of four children. And then her mother was pregnant again. Um, the baby died in utero and the mom got some sort of, had some sort of toxic condition, went to the hospital, had to go to a black hospital because she wasn't permitted to go to a white hospital. They had very limited resources there. And the mother needed a blood transfusion. They wouldn't give her a blood transfusion with white blood. So they had to get black blood from another city. The husband went to the bus terminal to wait for the blood. And while he was there, she died. So um, Joanne Bland was um, orphaned at age, I think, four. And then her grandmother came from Detroit and her maternal grandmother and raised the kids. Um, so she, you know, and, and so, she, I mean, Dorley described her, you know, she's, she's tough and bossy and opinionated. Um, but she's also very open and very present and, um, and very gentle at the same time. Um, so, so we met her, we were at a coffee house that belonged to a friend of hers. And so <clears throat> we left the coffee house. We're getting into the van to go to lunch. And there's this building next door that's um, unmarked. I, I think it was unmarked. Um, and it was just, there was, well, first of all, there's, there's very little activity in this town. I mean, it, it was um, largely depopulated, I guess. Um, a lot of the buildings were vacant. The homes were vacant. Anyway, there was no activity in this building, but there was something very, very dark and sinister and disturbing about it. And I asked her what this building is, and she kind of whispered. She, she answered, but it was sort of, she almost whispered, and she just seemed so diminished as she was speaking. Um, and I had to ask her to repeat it, and she said, um, it's a, it was a slave holding pen. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, um, it's unspeakable, you know, really. So, and this is, this is something she passes by every day. You know, it's in their town. Um, so it was, um, and she, she shared a lot of her stories with us. She showed us, she drove us around the town. Um, she showed us the house where Martin Luther King stayed. She showed us the theater and she pointed out there was a separate entrance on the side and that's where all the black kids went and they had to go up into the, um, the upper levels to watch the movies. Um, yeah, she, she told us about Carter's drugstore and she said, um, she said, I, she, she, she talked about how much, how badly she wanted to sit at the counter and have a soda and spin around on a chair. 
like the other kids. Um, and, and it never happened. Um, so very, I mean, like, you know, well, and then, then there was a fellow at lunch, a friend of, what was this? Chapman. Chapman. Um, a friend of hers who was a couple years older and he came to lunch and he told us his stories too about growing up at that time. Um, so it, it's, it was basically incomprehensible. You know, it was so, it's all, I mean, first of all, they were children and the children were really involved in the civil rights movement in these, um, in a way that I had, I didn't appreciate before this. Um, in Birmingham, there were actually children's marches because the parents had to work. They had to, they couldn't keep taking off and getting arrested and whatnot. So they were, in fact, children's marches. Um, and then in Selma, there was a whole series of children's marches. Um, and then before um, the march across the bridge. And actually, I, I did pick up a couple books um, about Joanne Bland and her sister, and I have them in the back. And if anyone wants to read them, um, there's stories that they told of their life. You're welcome to take them. But um, yeah, so the the kids are really involved in this guy Chapman. He was um, he said he was a real social butterfly, and so his role was to because the parents had to work. So his role was to. Um, go to the meetings, the organizational meetings that had to be kept very, very quiet and um, get directions from the the pastor. And then the pastor would tell him very specifically who to bring this information to, which group of mostly women, it sounded like, or group of people, um, and to tell them where to meet, when to meet, what to do. So he was like very integral to the organization of this. And so yeah, it's just, you know, as they're talking about these stories, it's um, it's just heartbreaking. And I guess it was interesting, Dorley, because you mentioned the word tremendum and great forces as, as being great forces clashing. And as I was thinking about <clears throat> Joanne Bland and also um, Tom Reverend Tom Wilder at the Bethel Baptist Church, like for both of them... Um, they had like this, uh, well, both of them lived in these communities where they were exposed to the horrors, the brutality every day. They just, it was immediate. There was so many, you know, it was, it was right there in their community. Um, but they both fused with both of that was like a kind of a quietness to both of them and like an openness and, um, I wrote down seeingness. I don't know if that's a word, but that, and it seemed like it was part of the same thing. It was part of the horror. It was also the same quality. Um, and then I thought, well, I don't know. Is that love? I think it kind of is, you know. So they both had, you know. So Joanne Bland, she was tough and she was very determined, um, and but she was also just so gentle and um, and just filled with love. I mean, you wanted a big hug from her. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to share. And, and then I, as, in thinking it through, I realized, like, as for me, um, like the narrative of what happened when, as that kind of took form in my own mind, during the trip, I feel like th- this vi- very vivid narrative occurred, you know, t- sort of took form. And at the same time, like a kind of disintegration of my own narrative <laughs> at the very same time, um, similar to what happened during our, our study group, you know, it's kind of like my own assumptions about what history is and who people are and who I am and what I've you know, my own role and things I've done and said and blah, 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 blah. Like looking at that in a different light, um, it just felt kind of unraveled. And I still feel unraveled from the trip. Um, and I, I feel like, 
the fact that we were all doing it together, though, allowed that to occur. Um, you know, both our twice a day sittings, and then also we had like a text stream, uh, a text stream that was that also was a sort of container and kind of held us all together. Um, yeah. Anyway, there's so much to say, but I'll kind of leave it at that. Questions or, or just anything that you want to express from your heart. And just to just say um, as a kind of guideline that we want people to just speak, use I statements, just talk about what's coming up for you, um, you know, not just react to what somebody else is saying or crosstalk, but just uh, this is a time of tender sharing, um, which is, you know, what we were doing on our pilgrimage. Uh, and Clem has his hand up. Well, thank you for your talk. I'm, well, if I ever get the opportunity, I will visit that museum. It sounds um, well worth the trip. Um, while you were speaking, uh, what came up for me was um, a few lines from the Dhammapada where it says that uh, hate never dispelled hate, only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. And um, I, I think that's true. Um, you know, my, my experience with literature like this, I read, I recently read Up From Slavery by um, Booker T. Washington. And one of the vignettes in the story was uh, he was looking for students for the Tuskegee Institute. So he went around visiting you know, the local neighborhoods um, to see what he was working with. And he was invited to dinner at one house where there were 10 people and one fork. And this is the kind of conditions they were living in. And um, I can't imagine the intergenerational trauma that has been accumulated from this sort of treatment. I mean, it's, it's just awful. But I, I do want to thank you. Your talk was very enlightening. Thank you, Clem. Dave? Yeah, having grown up in that era, and that being, being really the backdrop of my adolescence and uh, still burned into my memory is a newspaper photograph of a black man lunging back as a German shepherd was pouncing at him. Uh, you know, the six o'clock news with uh, Bull Connor and his crew and the fire hoses and and ha having lived it and seen it. And I think people who weren't around uh, during the Jim Crow days are going to have a hard time really kind of conceiving of it. Uh, early 20s, when I was going through my kind of Dharma bum days, I was working, I worked for a little bit in a factory in the town I was born in in West Virginia. And uh, there, there's a wide, wide range of ages there, mostly white, but uh, some young, some black, young black people around my age, and uh, the humiliation they had to live through is that it's speaking to each other or speaking to 
me or the other white guys around our age, we'd have like normal conversations. But when like a shop steward, one of the bosses, one of the foremen came by, they had to talk like a character from a 1930s movie. Yes, I'm, oh yes, oh yeah. This humiliating persona they had to put on. And they were taught they had to put this forth. Otherwise, they'd be beaten, thrown in jail, at the best, or even lynched. And it's just unthinkable to try to imagine that utter humiliation being forced on people. Thank you, Dave. I mean, you witnessed that back then. Yeah. Yes, thank you. That was a. Uh, I really. Uh, I think Ellie Wazell said that that when you meet a witness, you become a witness. Yeah, that was. That's. Uh, that's. I think that's so true. And uh, <clears throat> this summer, I read. Uh, uh, Jonathan Ike's um, new uh, biography of Martin Luther King, and it, it recounts uh, his involvement in all those places that you went. I mean, because he was there, they called for him to come, and he came, and he came repeatedly to the South. And, of course, his famous letter from Birmingham Jail and so forth. But, um, you know, what struck me, and that was like meeting you know, to read about his life was like meeting a witness, you know, and, you know, and, and, and becoming a witness to, to the civil rights movement. And, you know, what struck me was just on the amazing courage, just the amazing courage those people had to put themselves in at harm's way at every, virtually every turn to have a meeting to, to, to march. Uh, to, you know, to get together in any way and just, just undertake their lives. It, 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 during that movement and those leaders especially were just so vulnerable and yet they just, they just, I mean, that was the wit, just struck me as just this awesome courage, you know, in face of, of, of the violence and the threats and, uh, the, disrespect and so forth. So uh, thank you. I, I just kind of wondered if you had any sense of, and I know it's a very short you know, trip, but any sense of um, race relations in Alabama today at all? Did you get any sense of how that is? Well, it's not too loud, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't I, I think it's really complex, but in Birmingham, and Malia, you can comment on this too, in Birmingham, it's now 80% black. And we were in the heart of the city, and it was kind of an incredible experience for me as a white person to be basically, you know, everywhere we turn, we're black people, but the people in Birmingham, I felt, were full of energy, very uh, high self-esteem, uh, proud, generous, friendly, and um, it was a kind of energy that was also powerful for me. And I, this is what my story that I make up is, is that in Birmingham now, everything that happened is out there. There's monuments, there's statues, there's parks, there's museums. Like you, it's all explicit what happened, the truth of white supremacy and racism. And there's something about the truth being out, open, revealed in monuments, talked about, that actually is part of the liberation. And I think back here in the North, we still don't want to talk about it. We want to keep silent. We want to act as if it's all down there. And uh, the power of talking, I mean, even this couple of weeks, like I talked to a friend who, as a child, grew up near Montgomery and 
um, you know, I was starting to talk and she, I couldn't really share very much because it brought up so much for her about what it was like to be a white child there with a liberal father who was a minister. And she said, I can't tell people my story because my story doesn't fit into the stereotype. And so there's something about talking about it that also allows all of us to go deeper and to understand ourselves more and what how this has affected our lives. Um, so that's, I don't know what you want to say. Um, but you asked um, what race relations are like there now. In Montgomery, um, Clem mentioned that the Tuskegee experiments, and there's at the State House, there's still a statue standing celebrating the physician who carried out those experiments. So, I mean, it's just like, yeah. Okay. Well, right, there's two things. There's this Tuskegee Institute, which was, right, and then there's the Tuskegee experiments. Um, right. Yes, Alan. I don't do this, so thank you so much for sharing all this. I'm privately a little envious, wish I'd gone. But um, the personal connection you had, the experience you had, and you're sharing it with us has moved me very deeply. Um, I'll spare you the parallel I experienced in my two years in Southern Africa, um, navigating South Africa and in those days Rhodesia. And um, briefly, I was the race trader who was teaching in a black school and got routinely thrown out of hotels and restaurants, the occasional bar. Um, it was a place where you did not dare question anything that was going on. Or you broke the sedition laws and you went to jail and that was some place you didn't want to go. One much nicer memory, a bunch of um, American politicians, I'll spare you my thoughts on that as well, uh, came to Maseru, which was Lesotho, where I was stationed, surrounded by the Republic of South Africa. And I met Andrew Young, and of, he made the impression of having basic human integrity. He looked you in the eye when he shook your hand and paid attention to what your name was and where you were from. A stark contrast to some of the other politicians who were cruising through town at the time. And of course he went on to become the UN ambassador and mayor of Atlanta and things like that. But you, you meet people who somehow got through all that and kept the humanity and were able to share it with you. And so the experience you have had of being there instead, well, I was a kid, so I was watching on TV when this stuff happened. Not the same. Oh, yeah, that's happening down there. How could that be? You don't understand the human price that's been paid and the courage and unbelievable love that has sustained people. So I thank you for sharing your experience with us. I hope we all learn something from it. Karen? 
yeah, thank you, Dorley, and, and both of you. Thank you so much for going and returning and sharing all of this. And I'm sure you will be more. Um, and then I guess I'm what stuck with me. Um, uh, I'm, I'm in Dorley's group, and they, sh they shared some photos of the trip. And the one that it must have been from the museum, that one that sticks with me is there's a photograph of a lynching of two black men. And then there's this whole crowd underneath of white people. And it's a party. Um, and I kind of couldn't think of what word, you know, and, and finally it's like a dystopia. And, and particularly there's some, looks like college age um, people, maybe in cardigans or letter jackets or something. That, to me, it, it, it could be my, it could have been my, my dad in college and, or, you know, it just, just strikes me that, you know, we're so connected to that um, complicity. Um, and, um, and then I lastly would like to say, I would love to have the poem uh, from the lawyer. Oh, the, that, the first a couple of stanzas of that, okay. I would love that um, about turning towards. <laughs> Dorley and Malia, thank you for what you've shared with us from your pilgrimage. Really appreciate it. Um, I have also thought about going to Alabama to learn more firsthand from the museums and the historical sites that are there. And what prompted that is similar to you, Malia, is I've studied American history in college. And so I've learned in that institution what slavery was like when it was initiated and the slaves were brought here from Africa and as well as through the civil rights movement. And I could see how going there would be a different experience than what you've been taught in books and in the classroom, you know, especially if you're in a mostly white environment studying this information. And when I think about like my own experience, when I want to move towards that exposure, I feel this resistance. And I can't quite pinpoint it, but I can, it's almost like I can feel the hatred and the cruelty that resides within that history. And it's it, it causes me to be afraid, as well as confronting my own pride and ignorance, you know, as a white woman. And I've I am a white woman, my you know, my racial background is that. And I've lived that way in America my whole life. And so I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about, while you were on pilgrimage, how your meditation practice supported you with the uncomfortable feelings, whatever they may have been, um, that you experienced while you were there. Um, I mean, I would say, you know, we did, so we, we sat Zazen every, you know, morning and evening, and then we also shared what we were experiencing afterward. And um, I guess there was such a range of experiences that people were having, and we were all so different. And, um, and I think I felt like we were all very generous toward one another and not being judgmental like anything was kind of okay and um and that allowed us to be to remain open i don't know for me um and i also felt it was help it was really powerful like what, what Doralee didn't mention was we had a COVID outbreak <laughs> toward the end of the trip and so um there were a lot of decisions that had to be made you know on the fly and whatnot and kind of just watching how even in the midst of this horror, 
that we were exposed to these horrors um, people were still making wise considered decisions I don't know it was very reassuring to me you know people were still upright and careful and thoughtful even amidst you know this what's in this incomprehensible horribleness um, That's a good point. Yes, five of eight of us ended up with COVID by the end of the trip. So, um, I have to sit with your question because um, I guess in the mornings for me, my zazen had something to do with uh, keeping my heart open um, so that I could really hear and listen and take in rather than shut down. So it wasn't so much a particular rage or sadness as much as just wanting to be able to be present to whatever was coming through. And then when I was the Legacy Museum, especially that, I, I don't think I have words to say what I felt exactly, but I had this experience of almost literally walking on parched carnal ground in my zazen. Like my zazen actually gave me more of a capacity to fully witness than I had had before. Um, and, and it was a sense of I can walk in that, that fire and not get burned. Kind of like that. Yeah. Over our time, so um, <laughs> uh, so I think maybe we'll bring our evening to a close. And I just am so grateful that you were here and we were together. And um, I think we'll be coming back to share some more, and certainly open to to talking. I mean, this is what it's about. So if something comes up for you or between us, um, let's welcome all of that. So, okay.